Welcome to Kineo Stream of Thought, a monthly podcast that features informal chat from the Kineo team about all things learning. I'm Stuart Chadwick, I'm Managing Director of Kineo in the UK, Europe and Africa. And today we're going to be exploring some of the findings from our recent learning insights research and upcoming report. And today I'm joined by... Mark Harrison, Consultant. John Williams, Global Marketing Director. Cami Bean, Senior Solutions Consultant. Okay, thanks everybody. So I just thought I'd set by, start by setting the scene around what Learning Insights is all about. Uh, some of you might be familiar with it already. It's a report we've been producing for a number of years now, which was really based on the premise that we wanted to understand better what was actually happening out there in L&D and learning technology, rather than what might be perceived to be happening. So we've done various research over the years and produced an annual report, which has helped set some of the scene of what's going to be coming over the coming year and what people are focused on. So this year, what we did is we've beefed up the reports. We've done a lot more research. Uh, We've done that through surveys and interviews uh, with some of our clients, but also others involved in businesses and L&D. And we've distilled all that down into a number of reports. The first one of those reports uh, is coming out shortly, uh, probably around mid to late August. And uh, this uh, podcast is really to discuss the themes within that report. So based on the uh, research that we've done, we've noticed a few sort of emerging themes that are coming through, which aren't necessarily wholly new to us. So we see a lot of uh, appetite towards social engagement, social learning, We see the need uh, for resource-based learning or or micro-learning as well coming through here. So part of what we're trying to explore is, well, what does that mean? Um, These topics have come up over the last uh, couple of few years. They're very, very popular ones. And is it that these things are now becoming better embraced or indeed are there still barriers to businesses really getting hold of these things and doing something with them? Uh, to help sort of encapsulate that, we've come up with the term micro-personal network learning, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, but really tries to encapsulate that these three areas of micro-learning, personalisation of the learning experience, and networking through social learning are all interconnected. And we want to really sort of propose that that might be a way of thinking about those areas. But also what we're here to discuss a little bit about is how engagement with those things are working. So I guess really just to get the ball rolling with the people with us today is to throw that question out there. These aren't new topics, but we've seen them come up time and time again. What does that mean? Yeah, so I think when we are talking about micro learning, everyone has an idea of that, right? It's shorter chunks, um, uh, smaller pieces. Uh, I, I think there's a few barriers we can dig into that as we as we start talking. Personal, you know, we're talking about uh, means to personalize the learning experience through either tools like AI or um, you know learners being able to find what they need when they need it on their own terms rather than being dictated that this is required training. And then that, that final piece network is really about social learning and we've been talking about that for years too, right? So how, how do we make learning and the learning experience more social, more connected, more networked so that we're learning from our peers, learning through experience. And so yeah, as Stuart said, these these aren't new terms. Um, so why are we talking about them now uh, in the Learning Insights report? And I think a big thing is it, adoption is often slow with all of this stuff. And so there are some barriers to, to some of this. I, I think the 
to me when I look at it is that I think we always borrow things from the world outside and there are strong drivers in the commercial world often that get ahead of the game because the, the numbers are bigger and the, the impact is bigger on organisations. So social uh, learnings is mirroring what's happening in social media or would like to be mirroring it. Um, I think the biggest barrier in that area, and it has been around, as you say, Cami, is the fact that organisations are uncomfortable with people sharing things that are uncontrolled, whereas the internet doesn't worry at all. So the, you can get mass communication really quickly and you get great connections when there's conflict, when everyone's saying, oh, I agree with you, that's a nice idea, that's brilliant. No one joins in. People want conflict. And organisations, it's the one thing they don't want, is for anyone to get up publicly and criticise something that the management has done or something the colleague has done. And so it's almost the antithesis of what makes the internet work is how organisations try and talk with each other internally. So I think there's always this dilemma. Everyone says we should have social learning, but in the end, maybe the more likely areas of this three tripartite equation is the micro and the personalization. I think we're much more comfortable and we have the tools and everything to make those happen and because they have been around and personalization is getting, as you said, cleverer and cleverer because of AI. It's how to bring in the network is, is the magic element. But organizations, I don't think, are well geared up to let that loose. I think there are lessons here, Mark. I agree with you there in terms of what you can take, as you say, from the commercial world. So if I take the world that I work in, which is marketing, actually we have been doing personalisation, we have been then tracking people through, and we have been trying to combine social in terms of that engagement as well and looking at that as an environment. I think the problem that you might then encounter, one of the barriers perhaps in organisations is they're not prepared to resource the nudge mentality, the constant sort of engagement that you need to maintain um, in, in running one of these programmes out because there's no, um, if you think about it, it's more difficult to track the cash in the till at the end of it. Whereas if you're investing in marketing or in sales, you can demonstrate the impact that that's having on your organisation much quicker and in cash terms. And so I think there are lessons from that environment that you can apply to learning and in terms of the, the methods you might adopt, um, which would then help in terms of driving some of those behaviours within organisations. So does it become necessary for organisations to be able to measure this? Do you think, do you think that, that end goal of still evidencing that some that the learning is connected to business objectives is necessary in, in the social learning world? I think, well, if, if there was a business case in the first place for the time that John's just been saying needs to be put in, someone is going to suddenly say, you had X man person days by the end of whatever, 12 months, what have we got for it? Um, we're back to the age-old problem about managing informal learning. Mm. I mean, everyone agrees that you need to evaluate any act you do just in case you didn't do the right thing and you learn from it. If you're doing it to justify your existence, like an ROI, it changes completely the behaviour patterns that people are doing. So I think you have to know why you're doing that evaluation. Um, it, it, this isn't a numbers game very easily, I don't think. 
And ROI is still something I hear, I mean, clients talk about, right? They have to prove ROI. They're talking to their CEO. Um, that's not going to go away, even though not everyone's comfortable with that term. Uh, and so, yeah, with these kind of less tangible things, how do you track ROI? How do you prove your value as an L&D organization? I think, the, I think that going back to what you're saying, John, I think there's an interesting point about what drives conversations. Because there was a period of time on the web that conversations were driven by people who were genuinely interested in what was going on and the flow of communication was happening. Maybe there was conflict, maybe this was going around. Then suddenly this extraordinary monetization of the internet turned likes and connections into money. And then suddenly it became incredibly commercial and it blew through the roof. And can you re ignite a similar sort of kudos internally in organizations. So in other words, if you're someone who's sparking off lots of ideas, lots of people want to find your internal blog, the ideas you're sharing, is there some way in which that has some kudos in an organization and you're not just down as some kind of little nerd out there who's, who's spent way too much time on that and they should be doing their proper job? So I think there has to be some way in which you incentivize the people who make social learning work. Because mm. I think the, the interesting thing as well is that have, you know, have the people now who are in the workplace, has their own, I suppose, the human operating system actually been impacted and changed forever by the internet and the, by the way that they interact digitally um, through social, for example? So if you think about, um, you know, 18 to 24-year-olds, over 90% of them will be using YouTube. They're used to that bite-sized pieces of information and having that interface and almost that immediacy of being able to show their reaction to stuff or sharing stuff. And I think the way that people interact with content, with information, with each other in the digital space has changed and therefore have organisations moved at the same pace and are they now delivering the experiences that people expect from a digital interaction within the workplace and I'm not sure that they are and I think it's identifying what's stopping them from from moving into something that would be much more meaningful and much more um, impactful for the learner. Here's a, here's a thought. <laughs> um, these ideas are driven by the people who want to share their information. They're not driven by L&D departments, yep. necessarily. Uh, this is a problem about control. So when you get people on the ground who have an idea and then run with it, um, you have to just let them go and let them do stuff. I remember many years ago a client who had a fantastic uh, story. They basically used to go around the whole of the world advising people left, right and centre on risks and if issues and things like that. And when they suddenly decided what they'd actually do is they'd share the risks and issues from, the, from a visit and they would literally share it with all the other countries and get a discussion going. And as a result, the person cut out 80-90% of their world travel because in the end, everyone got involved in sharing that information and there wasn't a single L&D person involved in any of it whatsoever. So it's a challenge to us to say, what is the role of people in L&D? Because people will have these ideas, but they don't quite know how and where they should be implementing them. Mm -hmm. So maybe we just we should be creating environments that are so open mm -hmm. that people could just do these initiatives, and they don't, they don't have to ask the question, am I allowed to do this? 
Um, and maybe that is when it will be truly unlocked. Mm, it's a good point. Talking about the uh, idea of uh, rationalising what you're doing, I, I heard a good example from one of the providers of uh, a technology that we use to help curate learning. And they were making the point that they have customers now who, rather than spending money on bespoke content or, or even library content that they're, they're using in the organisation, they're sourcing from stuff which is just out there available anyway. And actually their spend, therefore, they're shifting towards platforms which could curate content better. Um, and in doing so, are both providing better, more personalised and in some cases sort of AI-driven access whilst at the same time reducing their overall spend but enhancing the range of what people can, can access to and making it more relevant. So I thought that was quite a nice example of, of putting this into practice. Are we talking multiple platforms? I thought that's, that begs that question. Yeah. If, if I've got something I'd like to do that seems to be incredibly sensible, who do I talk to? What do I do? Uh, the, the, probably the least person you want to talk to is the person who's running the corporate intranet. Um, so, so essentially, where is this... Maybe our job is to communicate all of these things. Um, the, the, the curation side, obviously, we do a lot of curation work. Um, and I'm sure, Cammy, you've got quite a bit to say on that as well. But I, I think the curation side, if we're, if we're kind of not, not careful, is it locks things down. Uh, the AI takes over and, and suddenly that guy who was sharing this idea and, and stopping him travelling around the world mm-hmm. doesn't have any door open at all because it's locked behind... A, a kind of automated curation system. Um, what do you think, Amy? <laughs> well, I think if you think about micro learning, and I'm, I'm probably not going to answer your curation question first because I'm, I'm still stuck on micro learning in my head. I mean, a couple of things. Um, I think, John, you talked about it's, it's this, this age group thing, but I, I would argue that all of us want smaller pieces of content, right? That's just the nature. You know, we all we're all stuck on YouTube and three minute videos and, and, and all of that. So it's, it's an attention span or a, a focus thing for, for everybody. It's not age specific. Um, but I do think some of the challenges with going in the micro pro- approach, I mean, yes, if, if organizations are curating kind of external content, but, but a lot of organizations, and I see this with the clients who come talking to us, they, they, they still want to take their custom content and create micro micro tracks out of it, right? So lots of little bits and lots of little pieces. Um, maybe it's a retail environment where people are just on the store and they're, you know, I just need to access product knowledge right now, right before this customer who looks like she wants to buy paint or, you know, whatever it is. I've got to figure out how, what, what I need to sell to that person right now in this moment. Um, and, and one of the challenges, I think one of the barriers to adopting that approach, though, is, is a bit of the, um, the maintenance issue, right? Like, there's now there's all these pieces and it's um, it might feel overwhelming to people um, and, and in fact maybe that's actually what makes it easier right now these things aren't all locked into these big courses and they're much more accessible therefore they should be more maintainable um, but it's a really different kind of a skill and uh, it's a different way of designing content than people are used to so um, you know, you think about your classic 30 minute used to be an hour long course, right? Um, we've all built them two hour long courses. Um, now we're talking about building two minute little experiences. And that's a very different design lens, I think. So, you know, a lot of this is capability building and sort of shifting internally of, of some of these skills. Um, and that's, that's change and it's scary. Uh, so I, I see that as a barrier. Um, hmm, that's a good point, Cammy. 
I mean, what would you have for advice for people in that situation who are trying to sort of navigate that change uh, as learning designers? Is, is there support out there? Uh, well, I think, you know, certainly in the kinds of content that we're trying to design for our clients, um, it's modeling that sort of behavior, right? It's, it's, and I think some of this is in our report, right? When you're designing a micro learning piece, it's focus on one learning objective, right? You can't spoon the ocean anymore and you have to keep it really short and sharp in the words of Mark Harrison. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think there's an interesting area, I mean, and it's something that fascinates me at the moment is, is that the, there were two worlds in the past. One world was about interactive learning strategies and you and I, Cami, grew up with all of those over the years and part of the, part of the skill in some ways, was to understand there was this interactive dialogue between you and, and the users you go along. Um, and then you get YouTube where there's no dialogue at all, and yet it is 99% of the learning that anyone does is through YouTube, and none of our lovely interactive programs that we've produced over the years. And you look at what happens on YouTube is you have authentic people who are quickly trying to get over what, what needs to be done, and you the titles are really clear, and you get in there and you do it. And what's fascinating is that we still overproduce, I think, inside the corporate learning world. Uh, we should just have a simple title that says, how do I do this? I don't, I, we don't get commissioned to produce, how do I create a spreadsheet that really works? Maybe in the US there's more chance, we're a, bit, a little less... Um, good at that in the, in the UK. Uh, but I think in the end, we will learn from the fantastic stuff that's going on outside. And um, so YouTube uh, have um, an academy for how do you make YouTube videos? And they are excellent, professionally presented and done. They're not great for directly for learning, of course, because they're all about marketing, how you do uh, hair products or whatever and things like that. But the same skills are absolutely what should be applied to these micro-objects. It's about animations, it's about videos, it's about short, sharp stories and messages. And uh, we should be much, much more open to what's happening out there in, in the vibrant and very professional world of, of the internet. So I think it's just people opening up their eyes. You know, I, I worry when I look think of internal e-learning production teams and seven or eight of them struggling to work through internal content that they've got to produce in six months' time. And I'm thinking, no, you should be looking out there and going, whoa, we could do something like this, we could do something like that. That doesn't happen inside corporates, I don't think. The question I've been pondering, actually, is within L&D and now, are we in the entertainment business? Because is that is that how we get people to engage No, we're in the content? engagement business. Well, yeah, exactly. But when, when you think at, you know, I was thinking in terms of if you go on a flight now, you get really clever, funny videos to, to relay some really serious information because people were not paying attention to, to the safety demonstration. So now you have films or you have, um, you know, um, animations sort of bring that to life a little bit. But you could always argue, I suppose, as well, that, you know, teaching or even classroom was always about entertainment and sort of engaging somebody in, in what you had to say and, and to get them to, to react or to... to to interact with you, I think we've always, I think we've always done entertainment. There's mm. always been the odd client who said, "I want to make this fun." You know, this this is the seventeenth data protection program these guys <laughs> will produce. This has got to be funny, and they will go to an organisation like Kinio to do that. So we do get our fair share of do it fun, 
Um, and they're often the ones that win awards if you get it right, and sometimes mm. they're the ones that are absolute disaster if you've got the tone <laughs> wrong. Um, people, I think engagement is, I want to know this. Yep. And give it to me. And if you do it in a slightly entertaining and quick way, that's brilliant. And in- engagement is not entertainment. Engagement is, I need to do something. Wow, that's interesting. And you you learn an extra layer. It's interesting. I've been studying documentary for the last year um, as, a, as an MA, uh, as uh, in parallel with all the rest of the things I'm doing. And it's about storytelling. And it's about saying, here is a dilemma. Here's something. P- put that right at the front. How do you? Mm. And then you unravel it as time goes mm. on. It's a journey you ne- must take. The le- Even if it's two minutes, you still got to ask the question at the beginning. And there isn't a learning objective in sight, of course. <laughs> but what there is, is that element of rich media. And I think that, John, that's kind of what you're talking about. Um, I think for a lot of L&D teams, um, you know, where we're used to assembling PowerPoints and turning those into interactive e-learning using, you know, an off-the-shelf authoring tool, uh, rich media has kind of taken it up a whole notch. And so a lot of our courses, you know, a lot of the, the solutions that we're designing here in the U.S. market a lot more animation than we used to do because people, you know, they want that hook. They want, you know, a rich media element. And that's it's a different skill set and it's a slightly different price point, to be honest. Um, and so, you know, you may not have a strong internal team to, to do animation within your L&D organization. And now you have to start looking to outsource some of this stuff. Um, but there are ways to keep those costs down. And, and Mark, you've talked about the U2 style, you know, people doing things on their iPhones, right? It, it doesn't have to be hard, and you can keep that level of authenticity, credibility, engagement, as long as it's designed right, and, and a key piece of that is really understanding, you know, from a learning design standpoint, who's our audience? What's the business objective? What are, you know, what are the outcomes and the results we're trying to achieve so that we're keeping that message super focused um, so that it is engaging, it is relevant, it is going to help you do what you need to do better to do your job ultimately. I, I think if there was a message to send out to people about this at the moment, is take a risk. Because it isn't as much a risk as you think. That's the point. People are ready to hang anything that's challenging and different. Um, but unfortunately, they have an expectation as soon as they're seeing some kind of corporate training program that it isn't going to be. And I think we're all a little too cautious. I think subject matter experts are too cautious about how their content is treated. I think organizations are cautious uh, uh, about keeping their standards and, and what they're doing. And I think designers are just slightly worried they might not get it right. And I think everyone should just, hey, loosen up. <laughs> That's nice advice, Mark. Uh, I just have a kind of a, perhaps a final point I wanted to make around how, how this balance is met between we've got an appetite here from learners to be getting more access to training and learning and be more self-led in that. We've got uh, an L&D community who's trying to help support and embrace that but recognising that they also need structured learning in here and how these two things meet and I think seem to remember actually in our last year's report one of the things that came through is that whilst people wanted all this this social uh, aspect to their learning and a personal experience they also did feel that they needed some structure here too so it couldn't be completely unstructured all the time I, I just guessed if uh, I wondered if there was any more thoughts on that that conundrum mm. 
I mean, I, I, an analogy that I've used in the past has always been about you can have two different environments. You can have the the museum browsy type environment where you don't really want to force people through one door or the next door, or you have the airport where fundamentally you don't jump on the plane before you've checked in. So there are some situations where a structure is what everybody wants. No one says in the airport, oh my God, why can't I just go straight on the plane? Don't know, because they know that something needs to, there needs to be some building blocks. I think micro-learning really should be the jump-off points from a core, personally. Um, and that, that would be ideal from a learning point of view. So in other words, you get that core element of learning, and then you go, I want more. And that's where the micro comes. You don't want more if it means it's a two-hour another program. So I think you go into more depth as you go along, because two minutes is nothing. It might be great what the learners want, but no one learns anything in two minutes. That's the issue. Something that's worth knowing takes a thousand years. <laughs> but no one wants to do a thousand years. So how much do we pander to someone saying, I want for two minutes? I think what you have to say is, here's the two minutes, but that you know nothing yet. <laughs> then, uh, there's another two minutes, and you still don't know anything yet. Then uh, That's what you want them to do, to grab the two minutes and the two minutes and the two minutes and the two minutes. Mm. We must never give the impression that that two minutes is now meant. That's all you need to know on this topic. Mm. That's a good answer. Is there any final points from anyone before we wrap up? Yeah, I just I think adding one point to, you know, micro personal network, whatever we're calling this, um, it, it is and it always has been, I think, having multiple channels available to people, right? Like we, we, we've, we've been talking about this for years too. You don't have just one channel for learning. That's, you know, the 30-minute storyline course. It's giving people choices where adults it's giving people those choices within this context. So to Mark's point about having the museum versus the airport. Um, and that might be overwhelming for organizations too, because now you're kind of having to design and build it all, right? So how do you do that in a smart way so that you can reuse these objects? I mean, the, the, that was the promise of SCORM, right? The shareable content object um, that we could swap in and out, you know, that, that, dream has never died um, and ultimately we want to reuse things in smart ways so that we're not building it twice but uh, you know from the the end perspective of the the learner the the employee the person who's got to access this we want to give them a lot of choices yeah I mean uh, the thing the the best learning structure I've ever come across in my whole life was a core of a process so you had the core was this is what you do to do your job. These are the prerequisites. These are the outputs. These are the pre at each stage of the process. It's almost like a task analysis. And at each point, you then had the jump-off points to go in more depth. So if you didn't know how to create that output, suddenly there was the learning that you could access from it. And in effect, the organization concerned actually basically put out what was the core of where they operated and then from it, they spin it off. And a lot of organizations that we work with, some energy companies, have core operating procedures. And all of the learning is based on that, on the central operating procedures. And that makes it relevant. It's no longer about learning. This is how I do my job. And then when I'm trying to work out how to do my job, you give me these learning objects. And it's been an idea that's floating around for some time. Maybe we shouldn't be having learning management systems. We should just say, this is what you need to do your job. 
Mm. And then the learning just spins off from that. It is still a learning management system, but you frame it and brand it differently. Great. Thanks, Cammy and Mark, for those final points. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We've raised a few questions and discussed a few themes, possibly given a few answers, possibly asked more questions. Um, um, these are all based on uh, items that you're going to find uh, in this upcoming report from us. And as I said at the beginning, this is the first of three reports which we're generating, and we'll be building out on these themes and discussing some of these points through Twitter and other channels that we use. So we're very, very keen to hear your, your views on this stuff too. How do you get a copy of the report? Well, beneath this podcast, you'll find a link where you can sign up for a copy. If you're listening to this before it goes out and after it goes out, it'll probably be a bit more obvious where it is. Um, and if you want any more general information about any of these themes that we've discussed today uh, to get support on these things or just to discuss them with us, you can find our website, kineo.com. You can follow us on Twitter, uh, which is at kineo. And we've also got a general inquiries email, info at kineo.com. Thank you all for listening and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Music